What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app, or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. This week, we look at the potential of making birth control pills available without a prescription. The future of ghost kitchens might just disappear. And we'll look at conservation, climate change, and how communities are finding solutions. We begin, though, with political strategies. I'm Ron DeSantis, and I'm running for president to lead our great American comeback. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has officially announced his candidacy for president. But we're going to look not on a national scale, but at a more local level. Because even in Florida, where the governor has announced his Republican run for the White House against GOP favorite Donald Trump, Republicans lost the mayoral race in Jacksonville in northern Florida. The GOP also lost the mayoral race in Colorado Springs, another traditional Republican stronghold. So now only two out of 32 of the largest U.S. cities will have Republican mayors. Have Republicans just given up on local politics in favor of the national stage? Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jonathan Bernstein covers politics and policy, and he joins me now. Jonathan, what was your first thought when you saw that Republicans lost the mayoral races in Colorado and in Florida, areas that are traditionally pretty deep red? Yeah, you know, it's it's sort of, there's a couple things you can say. One of them, which is just a, a sort of right now, is that despite Joe Biden's uh, low approval ratings, Democrats are doing very well in elections, um, and that's sort of continuing into special elections and these off-year elections this year. But there's also a longer-term story about this, which has to do with that Republicans have given up on being competitive in cities, and they've given up on caring about cities and the people and issues and interests that that are urban um and it's it's sort of astonishing that um republicans now uh after after losing these two only two of the lar- two of the 32 largest united states cities um only 14 of the 70 largest will have republican mayors that is astonishing those numbers in particular now is it because urban areas simply aren't as important to the national political conversation anymore exactly you know there there's there's a lot of stories about how um republicans use you know the, the thing about this that people might not know is that if you go back to the middle of the 20th century there were a lot of republican cities los angeles was a republican city detroit was a republican city you know, in the in the 1940s and 1950s, there's a, a complex, complicated story of how Democrats took the lead in cities. But there's also a institutional and rules-based reason why Republicans felt uh, have been willing to just give up on this, and it has to do with the Electoral College. Um, at one point in the middle of the 20th century, the big cities were crucial to the Electoral College, and and states such as New York and Illinois 
were big swing states, and so you had to compete there. Um, that's changed a lot uh, over the years, and now in the last um, election, only two top ten cities were in swing states, um, only uh, Philadelphia and Phoenix. Um, so you can sort of not compete in the cities and still be competitive for presidential elections. Republicans are doing this, though, but not Democrats. Can Republicans afford to ignore cities where Democrats are focusing? At some point, there may be some tipping point where it actually costs them. But um, so that, for example, in Texas, um, where Republicans uh, used to hold um, or be competitive for mayor seats in the big cities, uh, now all the big cities have Democratic mayors. Um, that's part of why Texas um, could eventually become a much more competitive state because Republicans don't have anything to say to people who live in cities. They don't have any policies. They don't have anything really. The, you know, Republicans increasingly caring about rural areas, which are overemphasized in presidential elections and are really overemphasized, uh, you know, over rewarded in U.S. Senate elections, um, just don't have. You know, is there? an urban policy that Republicans have? Not really. Now, let's talk a little bit more about the Electoral College, because I grew up a political junkie, and that was where you won the delegates. That's where you won the Electoral Colleges in the in the cities. That's how it used to work. What is the X factor? What changed? You know, a lot of it, there, there's a whole bunch of different pieces to it. One is that there just are fewer swing states than there used to be. And as far as I, I know, and I, some political scientists have looked at this, and I don't think they've ever concluded anything except that it's sort of a coincidence. It, it just happens that there was a period of time where a whole bunch of states were very closely contested, and now less so. And there were times in the past, you know, we we had a period of time where the entire South was not competitive in presidential elections. So if you go back sort of 150 years, there were very few states that were competitive. And then in in the course of the 20th century, we wound up having a whole bunch of competitive states, including a whole bunch of big competitive states. And the Electoral College tends to reward states in numbers. Let me sort of go back. Okay. In, in basic numbers, people will say, well, the Electoral College rewards small states because the formula for the Electoral College is the number of House seats and the number of Senate seats you have, so that you know if you have 10 House districts, you get... To 12 electoral votes for your 10 House seats plus two senators. And because the Senate is, uh, each state has the same weight, so that Wyoming has the same two senators that California has, um, that over-rewards Wyoming. But, in fact, you notice very, very few presidential candidates campaigning in Wyoming because it has three electoral votes, and who cares? And even a fairly close uh, electoral college state like, say, New Hampshire or Maine, that's a small state, you don't get a whole lot of attention from presidential candidates because the the states that really are advantaged by the Electoral College are big, close states. So, you know, Florida and Ohio in relatively recent elections got a huge amount of attention. Now that those are a little less competitive, you know, Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, uh, Minnesota, all pretty big states... Um, are the ones that get the attention. But it happens that, you know, with the exception of Philadelphia, 
most of those don't have big cities in them. And and that seems to be sort of just coincidence of how the votes happen to stack up. It's not like by design or um, you know a deliberate attempt by anybody to make it turn out that way. But it just happens that we don't have a whole lot of big cities in the competitive states. I'm curious about the concept of tribalism, entrenched electorate. You know, if if people are on a side, that is the side they are on. You are not going to change their mind. Is this a factor? Um, To some extent, yes. Um, We have, we do have more um, partisan uh, voting these days than there was 50, 60 years ago. Um, And so it means that, you know, if you have a group that votes strongly for one party, it doesn't really pay the other party to bother with that group um, because they're so strongly entrenched. That's always sort of been part of how politics works anyway. Uh, it's a little stronger now, so there's less um, uh, split ticket voting. Part of what happened in these cities recently in the mayoral elections could be a reaction to national trends, whereas at one point, you know, people who are upset with Donald Trump vote for the Democrat for mayor. That didn't used to be true nearly to that extent. Where is this headed? What are the consequences that are going to come from this? Well, I think that it's, you know, it has had the consequences um, that Republicans do not have, Republicans don't have policies that appeal to broad, uh, to the broad country. They have increasingly talked only to themselves and tried to rally their own supporters. I think to some extent partisan polarization makes that true for both parties, but the particulars of the Electoral College and what gets rewarded and what doesn't make it even easier for Republicans to feel that, well, we're not going to win cities anyway, so let's give up on, well, let's give up on black Americans because they live in cities, so we don't need them. It just seems um, like that would create more tribalism, more entrenched. Not open, it, it, The big tent concept seems to be gone. Exactly. Um, that it tends to reinforce um, the already, the, the tendency to begin with for partisanship, and it just reinforces it. And especially, again, especially for Republicans, because Democrats, because uh, rural voters are so overvalued in the Senate, Democrats can't just say, yeah, we, we're doing badly among rural voters. Forget about it. You know, we'll just lose them. And, you know, you, you hear that in the rhetoric both parties use. You never get Democrats, or never is too strong always, you rarely get Democrats who would, you know, bash rural areas in general or bash rural states. And it's not uncommon at all for Republicans to just criticize, you know, New York City or big cities or California or, you know, other states that they have no chance in. Because the way that electoral incentives work, Democrats are not willing to totally give up on rural voters in the way that Republicans have given up on urban voters. Bloomberg Opinion columnist Jonathan Bernstein covers politics and policy. And coming up, we'll look at the debate over one birth control pill and whether it might soon be sold over the counter without a prescription. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. 
Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. In South Carolina, senators passed a bill banning abortions after six weeks of pregnancy. The governor says he'll sign it. But women in the South Carolina Senate have spoken out against it across party lines, including independent Senator Mia McLeod. It's so disheartening to think that 41 men in this body um, can make decisions for women and girls that will impact women and girls across our state for generations to come. And it's not just South Carolina. More states are considering similar bans. Meanwhile, access to contraception can be harder than necessary. But now a panel of independent advisors to the Food and Drug Administration have unanimously voted in favor of approving over-the-counter availability for a birth control pill called Opil. The panel has made its recommendation, and now it's up to the FDA. We get more now with Lisa Jarvis, a Bloomberg opinion columnist who covers biotech, healthcare, and the pharmaceutical industry. Okay, Lisa, how would this work? An over-the-counter birth control pill. Would you need a physical exam? Would you need to be under a doctor's care? How does this work? Yeah, I think the idea is that we have decades of safety data on birth control, and in particular, this type of birth control, which is a progestin-only pill. And, you know, most women might get a cursory 20-minute visit with a doctor, and they have a prescription that's refilled without follow-up visits, and it's perfectly safe to do that without the doctor's visit. Um, it would lower a lot of barriers to access, and so and we have a lot of experience with it to know that it would be safe. Why has it taken us so long to get here? Oh, my goodness. In 1993, there was an editorial in a major medical journal asking for over-the-counter birth control. I mean, I think there's just a lot of hesitancy, um, probably for political reasons. Um, But, you know, we're really at a place where the urgency is there. Women have fewer options for um, how they address an unwanted pregnancy. And so the stakes are really high. Um, And so I think there's been a lot of pressure. The FDA has punted this. It was supposed to be reviewed back in November. And so now here we are and advisors unanimously. um, It was to me very interesting to hear their comments said this needs to happen. What were some of their comments? You know, some of the criticisms of the data that was presented in the um, two days that advisors met to talk about this from the FDA were around whether women could adhere to taking the pill, which the directions are very simple. Take one pill at the same time every day. Um, We know that in the real world, adherence, you know, when you get it prescribed by a doctor isn't great. And we know that in the trial that they ran to show that people could do this, the reason that they didn't adhere was largely because they couldn't get back to a clinical trial site to get their pills renewed. So, you know, kind of gets at the heart of the problem. If you could go to your corner CVS and fill in that gap, you would really be in a lot better place. So is that the strongest pushback that this might be facing? The the one argument that would be louder than the others or would have more traction than the others is that consistency and being able to do this on a regular basis for the, the patient, for the woman. She may not be able to pull that off. 
it's one of three arguments that got the most attention during the two-day meeting. The other one was around whether women could correctly decide if the pill was appropriate for and safe for them. And really, there's just... What? <laughs> well, really, there's just one group that would have a risk of this particular kind of pill. And that is women who have a history of breast cancer. Sure. It would be contraindicated. It could help your, could potentially help uh, the cancer come back. Um, but, you know, the thing is, there was very good data, I thought, presented on that because, you know, most women who undergo breast cancer treatment are above the age where they would be then bearing children. The ones who aren't typically get an IUD. Beyond that, if you're like in a situation where you might be in the small percentage of people who would be interested in hormonal birth control pills, there's a very clear label on the box that says, do not take if you have a history of breast, breast cancer. So I think, you know, overwhelmingly, um, the uh, gynecologists who were um, reviewing this um, for FDA said, you know, most of those women are seeing their doctors on a regular basis and will be told, do not do this, you know, and so the public health benefit really outweighs the very small risk of someone making that mistake. I, I have to say, as a breast cancer survivor, my oncologist, like the third thing she said after explaining treatment was, oh, and birth control pills are in your past. This will not happen for you, though. You'll never take those again. She could not have been more clear. Thank you for saying that, because I think that point was not sufficiently appreciated in the meeting, even though people were saying it, it kind of, you know, people, the the oncologists who were presenting kept saying over and over again, this is a thing we talk to patients about. They're under regular care anyways, and we will repeat it to them. Yeah, so. they watch you like a hawk. Lisa, something that you had said that caught my ear was, you know, the, the question of would women know enough about their own bodies or about their own health care to be able to make the decision to um, buy this pill on their own without a doctor's prescription. Now, as a woman, my first response is, you know, to burst into flame and say, who do you think you are? But, you know, because women do actually are sentient beings and do have a mind of their own. However, did you get that sense when you were listening to these arguments made where they, they weren't being insulting, they were being concerned? Like, what was the sense in the room? Yeah, I mean, I think most of the concern was around adolescents and teens, you know, in excess or people who have low literacy and whether they would understand how to appropriately read the directions on the box. And the concern was less that it would pose a danger, but that if you didn't take it appropriately, you were still at risk of a pregnancy or that teens in particular might confuse this with um, plan B, you know, um, and, and not use it correctly. I think the trials showed they enrolled a lot of people in those groups and showed that they did a good job and probably about the same as they do when they're under a doctor's care. And we know a lot of teens take birth control for a variety of reasons, not just to prevent an unwanted pregnancy, but to deal with acne or, you know, other, you know, kind of reproductive health issues. So how would an over-the-counter availability for a birth control pill change the landscape? I mean, how earth-shattering would that be? I think it would be a big deal. I mean, part of the most compelling testimony I thought in the two days was from uh, college age women who talked about, you know, I'm very educated, but when I moved to a new state for college, I had trouble getting my birth control because you have to find a new doctor. You can't just transfer a prescription. You might not have a ride to a provider to get that prescription. I think there's just a lot of barriers for a lot of women, whether you're in an urban setting or a rural setting, and it would just lower those. Is this a clap back to the rollback of abortion access? Is that what's this on? 
I mean, it had been in the works before that. I think there's a new urgency around it for sure. I mean, certainly the stakes have never been higher. And by the way, even if you live in a state where you have access to abortion, pregnancy itself is a risky proposition these days. I've written in the uh, you know recently about the rise in maternal mortality rate. So really, we want to have women empowered to make good choices about their reproductive health, and this gives them one more. Um, and but of course, especially in, important in those states where they no longer have um, abortion access. When the FDA receives a recommendation from an independent panel like this one, does it usually take a long time to be able to come to a decision, to put it to a vote, and then get the drug to market? The FDA usually has a date by which they have to make this decision. Um, In this case, it's unclear how long it will take. And they don't, by the way, have to follow the advice of their advisors, which was why I wrote this column sort of saying you should follow their advice. They typically do, but we have many instances of times when they haven't, um, especially in areas where there's some controversy or political controversy. Um, And in particular, the FDA has been, to me, overly cautious on things around women's health. We know that they've put a lot of restrictions on medication abortion, for example, despite safety data. So, um, you know, hopefully this is available by next year. I hope. (laughs) Lisa Jarvis is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering biotech, healthcare, and the pharmaceutical industry. Now, coming up, we're going to take a look at ghost kitchens, how they came to be, and why they're disappearing. This is Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. You're listening to the Bloomberg Opinion Podcast. Catch us Saturdays at 1 and 7 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. This is Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. Zoom meetings, hand sanitizer, flexible work days, QR codes. These are pandemic habits a lot of us have embraced, even in this post-pandemic era. These habits have staying power, but not so much for ghost kitchens. Those are restaurants that only offer delivery. Let's learn more with Bloomberg Opinion columnist Leticia Miranda. She covers consumer goods and the retail industry and joins me now. Could you explain what a ghost kitchen is and and how that came about? Yeah. So um, ghost kitchens, also known as virtual or cloud kitchens, um, they are um, a group of kitchens um, that are built in warehouses. Usually there's some kind of a company like cloud kitchens um, that owns the warehouse and then invites or sells kind of a bunch of kitchen stations to different restaurants so they can cook their own food. Um, And then on, from a consumer perspective, you'd probably interact with the ghost kitchen when you're you're ordering on Uber Eats or Grubhub, um, and you know you order from Jane or Joe's sandwiches. Um, it could come out of one of these 
ghost kitchens or virtual kitchens, which is just sort of a kitchen station along with other ones. And what I learned when I was reading your column on the Bloomberg Terminal is I always assumed these ghost kitchens were just sort of mom and pop independent restaurants, you know, just different individual places that are really trying to survive during the pandemic. So they created this sort of ghost kitchen where you order online and then it's delivered. I didn't realize that these could also be national chains like Wendy's jumping on this trend and it becoming such an enormous part of our, and I hate to put it this way, but a part of our pandemic experience. Yes, a struggling kind of restaurants, fast food um, chains jumped onto this trend because it's typically a lower cost way to deliver food. Um, And it also, uh, what some restaurants started to do was they started to sell under different names. So, for example, um, Chuck E. Cheese um, kind of came under some scrutiny um, for doing this, where they had, uh, they were running a ghost kitchen called Pasquale's um, that some people thought uh, was kind of a local pizza spot, uh, but turned out to be uh, run out of. Chuck E. Cheese's own kitchen. Um, so yes, it, it is a bit confusing about who is who. Um, and a lot of chains jumped onto this because it was a way to keep costs low and keep deliveries going out the door, um, but also a way to kind of maximize revenues. So it sounds like it was popular. Did it seem to have staying power when it was first started and as it got some traction? I think a lot of restaurants saw a lot of promise um, because the costs are lower. It takes um, a smaller staff to run. Um, and, you know, it feels like forever ago. But during the pandemic, when there were, you know, kind of restaurants were closing doors because of mask mandate policies or because of different city ordinances around um, the pandemic to try to keep it from spreading, a lot of restaurants were struggling um, with figuring out how to jump onto the food delivery business. Um, So this was kind of a way for large chains, which were struggling as much as the smaller businesses to figure out how to keep how to keep the lights on, um, even while people weren't coming in to dine. What is the advantage for a business to have a ghost kitchen versus the advantage for a business to have people coming into the door as patrons? I mean, arguably, I think the ghost kitchen concept made a lot of sense when people were either afraid or weren't able to eat in person. um, And we didn't have sort of our normal, you know, working from the office habits. Now, though, um, people are coming back into restaurants, they're going back to the drive through at the fast food chain. um, And so that a lot of companies are seeing that it's a lot more profitable to go back to kind of that traditional dine-in experience, that traditional drive-through experience, um, rather than invest in a ghost kitchen that only offers delivery, where, you know, whereas now, because people are coming back to restaurants, you can have them dine in and you can offer delivery. So you're kind of maximizing the value of that real estate space. I just thought it, they would have had more staying power, just as you described, Leticia, just out of convenience for customers and uh, less expensive, you know, less overhead uh, for the restaurant owner. And didn't work out that way. What happened? Yeah, I, I mean, I think there there was a big issue, too, around transparency. Um, the ghost kitchen concept is new and like with a lot of business models, um, 
that are new, um, it's difficult for regulators to figure out how to think about them, how to enforce labor codes um, and health codes. Um, so that was something that definitely Ghost Kitchens got in trouble for early on, um, where, you know, health and um, inspectors would come into a ghost kitchen, see violations, and then weren't sure about who's responsible for them. Is it, you know, the restaurant that runs that kitchen station, or is it the ghost kitchen operator? Um, so that kind of created a lot of issues. Um, and then, like I mentioned, on the consumer front, a lot of consumers didn't actually know who they were <laughs> ordering from when they were online. Um, and then we're surprised when, you know, um, a pizza that's a lot like a Chuck E. Cheese pizza shows up at their house, but maybe they paid more for it because, um, you know, Chuck E. Cheese is selling it at a premium. Um, so I think that it created a lot of issues up front. Um, that, you know, kind of, uh, I guess, set it up for for it to not really survive in this sort of new era. Is this sort of part of the need to get out that pent up demand we've been hearing about people are just aching to leave their homes and go be social again? Yeah, I think that definitely has a lot to do with it. Um, uh, People prefer to, you know, I, I think that people miss going to restaurants and um, getting out and seeing people. Um, I think also as far as the rise again of the drive through, I think people are getting back to their kind of normal or pre pandemic routines, going into the office, maybe going to the gym, you know, kind of being out and about and, you know, going through a drive through or stopping by a restaurant seems a lot easier than, you know, before when we were just stuck at home and food delivery was really the only option. So I think it's both people missing being with people and then also just it's actually sometimes more convenient to have um, to go pick up something from a restaurant or run through the drive through. Do you think there would be a future for ghost kitchens? Uh, Do you think there's a possible market there that maybe somebody could come in and work through all the legalese and figure out the way to make this work? It sounds like it could have potential. I think so. Um, I think it's not, I I think with a lot of, you know, Silicon Valley concepts, I think that the promise was a lot bigger than what this concept could actually accomplish right now. Um, It it does make a lot of sense for smaller businesses that are, you know, trying to get off the ground um, because it is cheaper to just run a ghost kitchen then to go and find real estate, find a place that already has a kitchen built in, um, find staff, do all your own marketing. Um, so I think that there is a way to apply it. Some of these other, um, some of these ghost kitchens, including um, a company called Reef that had signed a partnership with Wendy's to roll out their ghost kitchens that didn't actually end up working out. Wendy's is closing all of those. But now they're also pivoting to uh, to do um, the technology behind uh, food halls at um, at airports. So when you oh. go to an airport, there's a ton of different restaurants. Um, and what Reef is doing is they're building the technology behind that. So as a you know consumer or somebody waiting at the airport, you can just order from through their platform. Um, and get your stuff delivered to your table or wherever you're sitting. It's similar to kind of what you already see in airports, 
But I think that that kind of application makes a lot of sense um, for a ghost kitchen that's kind of looking to pivot. Um, but then, yes, I, I think there there's also a possibility for smaller restaurants to to continue using these these opportunities. Leticia Miranda is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist who covers consumer goods and the retail industry. You're listening to Bloomberg Opinion. I'm Amy Morris. African lions have vanished from 94 percent of their historical range, and there are fewer than 25,000 left in the wild. The International Union for the Conservation of Nature lists them as vulnerable to extinction. Lara Williams is Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering climate change, and she joins me now. This is a big problem that leads to a bigger issue. First, I want to ask, where do we assign blame for the dwindling lion population? It's a mix of reasons, but one big one is human-wildlife conflict. So if lions don't have enough prey, then they will often resort to livestock and then locals in retaliation because they've lost the source of food and the source of income um, will often retaliate by killing the lions and that's been that's been a huge problem for lions across Africa. What does that then portend for the rest of us? How is that a signal that there is a problem? I guess it shows us that climate change is increasing the pressures on humans and wildlife and when we you know try and find solutions we've got to put put humans you know at the center of that as well as the wildlife you know i think what's positive is that you know through a lot of projects all over the world not just with lions is that you know what's good for humans is often actually really good for wildlife too you can have both now how are communities getting involved in helping in the problem Sure. So I was I was really lucky to be able to speak to um, this amazing woman called Shivani Bala, and she has um, started an organization in Kenya called Owasso Lions. In you know the lion population in that landscape has grown from eleven in two thousand and eight to uh, you know about fifty uh, in twenty twenty two. So it's a huge increase, and the lions are stable. And I think what was really noticeable is that rather than working against or apart from those who were killing the lions, as you might imagine, she was working closely with them. She works with a group of people called the the Zamburu people. Mm -hmm. And one of the warriors who would often actually, you know, they hated lions, but he came up with the idea um, for a program called Warrior Watch, where the Zamburu warriors who have this traditional role in protecting the community, they go out and they track the lions. And then um, by tracking the lions, they're able to tell the herders where to stay away from, you know, to keep their livestock out of harm's way. And that means that the lion population is safe, the livestock is safe, and attitudes to lions have really improved over the course of this program. Are you finding in your research that more of these community-centered projects are starting to crop up now as people find more solutions? Yeah, um, you know, so every year this um, charity in London um, awards money to conservationists all over the world. And I got to speak to some of them and, you know, they're putting community at the heart, you know, of their work, like everywhere. So I spoke to um, somebody running a project in Madagascar. And, you know, part of that is not only education, but giving people sustainable um, livelihoods so that they can lift themselves out of poverty and also work to protect, you know, the forests and the animals within those forests that are so valuable. 
are the projects that you are watching, those that have been cropping up that have the community as a center, do they have a future? Are they sustainable? Do, do they have traction? Yeah, I absolutely think they do. Lots of people, they're getting support from charities like the Whitley Fund for Nature. Um, and I think as we enter this sort of period where we're we're focusing and taking these issues more seriously, um, you know, lots of, you know, new ways of creating funding for these projects um, are cropping up. And so what I really hope is that, you know, these new financing tools focus on those projects that are doing the most for humans and sustainable development, as well as the wildlife and the environment that we need. Laura Williams is Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering climate change, and that does it for this week's Bloomberg Opinion. We are produced by Eric Molo, and you can find all of these columns on the Bloomberg Terminal. We're available as a podcast on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Stay with us. Today's top stories and global business headlines are coming up. I'm Amy Morris. This is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.